Welcome to the Grove Community Church Sermon Podcast. We're a faith community seeking to change lives, change our community, and change the world. And now to this week's message. We hope you enjoy it. The shoes that I'm wearing today have summited a mountain, 13,000 foot mountain in Colorado. They have hiked part of the Pacific Coast Trail. I mean, I have hiked in them. They didn't hike by themselves. They've been in Appalachian. They've hiked waterfalls in North Carolina. They've hiked waterfalls in North Georgia. These shoes have been a lot of places, and they're starting to fall apart. But these are, these are great tools when you're going to go on a hike. The right footwear is extremely important. When we were out in uh, California, and I don't remember which particular park it was this past fall when Laura and I went, and we we were in um, Yosemite and in Sequoia and in Kings Canyon. I don't know, remember where, I, I don't really remember where it was, but I packed these. I didn't want to wear them walking around that day, but I packed them in the back of the car so that when we got to the, to the trailhead, I could just throw them on. And I have a, a special pair of socks that I was going to wear with them. And when we got to the trailhead and I go to put them on, I'd, for, I'd forgotten my socks. Now, the thing is, is normally that wouldn't be a big deal if it was a small hike. But this particular day, we were hiking. Uh, it was about an eight-mile hike. And it was over the eight miles, about 3,000 feet of gain. Uh, elevation gain. So it, it, was not a, it was not a small hike. This was, this was the hike that Laura turned around at me at one point and said, if you were close, I would stab you with my hiking stick right now. <laughs> uh, I mean, she did. She really said that. Uh, and, and, I, and I believed her at the moment, right? So I wasn't about to uh, get close and find out. And I remember hiking and, and it being really tough, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I, I mean, this is, this is a legit hard hike, and I have the right shoes on. I have my trekking poles. I have my, my lightweight backpack with the, with the uh, strap here so most of the weight sits on my hips. I have everything that I'm supposed to have to make this the easiest hike it could possibly be, and I, at one point, was like, what am I thinking? I never admitted this to Laura, but I remember thinking, what in the world have I done? This is brutal. 3,000 feet of gain. So it was an eight-mile eight uh, circle, basically. But only about four of those miles was it any gain. So really, it was about 3,000 feet of gain of elevation in, in four miles. That's pretty... That's pretty that's a lot. It's a lot of elevation in a short mileage. And when we got to the top, I thought I was doing good. I thought, man, we got this. And then I looked over and I saw two 20-something girls. They didn't have um, a, a light day pack on. They had 30-pound packs on. They were hiking, and they were 
making the uh, initial ascent up to this part of Yosemite, and they were going to actually hike part of the Pacific Coast Trail and the John Muir Trail, and they were going to go for days. And here I am with my little pack, all the right equipment, the right shoes, the right poles and everything, and I couldn't handle it. And as if that wasn't bad enough, on the way down, I passed a man going up. This man didn't have trekking poles, and he had just tennis shoes on, and he had already gone I don't know how many thousands of feet of elevation when I saw him. And he had a child on his back. And it was a toddler. I mean, it wasn't a, it, it wasn't a small child. This is a child who was big enough to, and, and old enough to walk, but wasn't going to walk all the way up there himself. So, so his father put him on his back, on this backpack, and was carrying him up this mountain. And I thought, wow, these people are crazy. There's a lot of things that we come to in life where we think is hard and then we see that there's actually someone doing something much more difficult. And then there are times in our life where we get to those difficult situations and we can't carry the weight ourselves. We think we have the right shoes and the right poles and the right packs and all the right accoutrements to, to accomplish whatever it is that we that we want to accomplish this before us, but we just can't handle it. I want to keep that in mind as we look at this passage of Scripture, which probably is familiar with you. It's the baptism of Jesus, and it's in Matthew 3. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 3, and we're going to look at verses 13 through 17. It's a small little pericope that just lasts a few verses here, but has a lot of deep meaning. Verse 13, you can follow on the screen or you can follow on a smart device as well. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Does anybody know how far that would have been? Does anybody have that in their Bible, maybe in a note? Best guesses, this is about a 70-mile journey. So there's intentionality, there's link to this journey. This isn't just a, hey, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to hike around the, the park. This is a trek. This isn't just a simple, hey, I think I'll run to the store real quick. This is a, I've got to come up with everything I need for this journey. It's going to take me multiple days. I'm going to have to hike for I don't know how long to get to the Galilee I'm sorry, to the Jordan to be baptized by John. So Jesus leaves the Galilee with intentionality. And it's a long trip. And then we jump forward. Verse 14 doesn't tell us anything about the journey, just that he went, and now we see that he shows up. Verse 14, John, who was baptizing people, would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? So John is seeing this. He knows that Jesus is a Galilean. 
and he shows up, and he understands somehow who Jesus is, and he says, I should be baptized by you, and yet you come to me? Last week, we looked at a verse where John actually said, I'm unworthy. The one that comes behind me, I'm unworthy to even carry his sandals, which understand that was the lowliest job, washing feet, carrying sandals, anything with the feet, that's just nasty. And so John says, I'm unworthy. The one coming after me is going to be more special than me. He's the one that I'm kind of laying the foundation for. So John sees Jesus and he says, whoa, 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 I need to be baptized by you and you come to me? And then Jesus says, verse 15, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he, he being John, consented. So John says, I don't know about this. This doesn't seem right. You're the one that's greater than I am. I should be baptized by you, not the other way around. I mean, you're going to do the whole spirit and fire thing, and I'm just water here, just hanging out in this river. But Jesus answers, hold up. This is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Now, this is a kind of weird phrase. And this word righteousness is important that we understand what it means. The word righteousness in the original language means the human's correct response to God's directive. The human correct response to God's directive. So that could be right living. You should live this way. This is God's directive. This is how he wants you to live. It could be, it could be cooperating with God's will by submitting to God's will. God says this, so I'm going to do it. And so this word righteousness, particularly in Matthew, means when humans respond to do what God is calling them to do. It's the human response to God's directive. He says all righteousness here, though, and that's hung some people up. They're saying, it seems like he's saying, look, if I do this, this is all I need to do to be righteous. By the way, this is where some denominations gets their, gets their, some denominations get their theology of baptism. They say, oh, well, to fulfill all righteousness, you must be baptized. That's not what this means here. What he's saying is to completely fulfill what God wants for me and what God wants for you, John. This is very specific to Jesus and John. What God wants for me and what God wants for you, this is what he's calling me to do. And John understood it that way because he relents. He's like, oh, okay, well, yeah, you t you, you're greater than me, so I'll, I'll submit and I'll consent and I'll do what you call or ask me to do, Jesus. And so Jesus is baptized by John. The question that a lot of theologians get hung up on is the question, why? And today I kind of want to turn that question back to y'all for a second. Why do you think Jesus was baptized? Let's start with this question. What was, what was John calling people in his baptism to do? What was his baptism about? Repentance, right? Repent and realign yourself with God. So that was his call. So why do you think 
Jesus was baptized, if the baptism was about repentance, why was Jesus baptized? It's odd. Okay, not rhetorical, so y'all can answer this. There's not one answer either here. There's multiple facets to this. What do you think? All right, to identify with the people. Okay? So it's this idea of, I'm going to do this because I want to identify with sinful humans. And what else were these? They were not only repentant and sinful, what else were they doing that he would identify with? The second part of that was, the first part was repentance. What was the second part? It was to follow God, right? We talked about this last week, how repentance is, you know, I'm pursuing this over here and I realize that this is just fluff and instead I'm going to turn and pursue Christ. It's, it's a turning away from fluff and from, and from all the other stuff that just doesn't really matter and putting our focus squarely on God. So it's repenting is no and I'm turning my way and I'm doing this, what God wants me to. So it is admitting that you're wrong and then pursuing God. So he's identifying not only with their brokenness, but he's identifying with their desire to follow the Father. Does that make sense? It's both and here. Why else? All right, it marks the beginning of his ministry. It's a finality to it. It's a cleansing. Water and baptism was all about cleansing and preparation for the next part of your life. So it marks the beginning of his ministry. What else? Yes. It's an important transition. And I mentioned this last week, that everything John says in the previous verses are all themes and ideas that Jesus lives out and then takes deeper in his own ministry. So John is the thesis statement and Jesus is the body, right, and the conclusion. So John starts and says, this is what it's all about, and then Jesus lives all of that out. And so it's a passing on from John to Jesus. Now I have set the stage and I'm giving it over to you. Anything else that you can think of? I can't, I still, was there a prophecy about it? Yeah, no, but we're going to hold that thought. That's a good thought because there is a prophecy about part of this that we're going to come back to. I mean, think of, what, what is this foreshadowing? His death and resurrection, right? So it's also a foreshadowing of what Jesus has come to do. He's come to die, to be buried, and to rise again to newness, right? And so, in a brilliant stroke, I mean, guys, I hope you understand how beautiful this story is and what God has done here as he set this stage. I mean, this is, this is amazing. This is why so much of our literature comes from this same theme, because the themes in Scripture are extremely important. There's a book called How to, Read a, How to Read Literature Like a Professor. And one of the main points is 
something about how a lot of great literature goes back to some of these biblical themes. I don't know if you knew that. But this is a beautiful story. When you think about it, Jesus is going through with this thing. He's identifying with the people because he's saying that I'm going to identify with you and I'm going to take your sin and be buried with your sin and I'm going to come to new life and I'm going to bring you new life. And this is what God wants. And what John started, I'm going to fulfill. What John began, I'm going to put an exclamation point on the end of it. This is a beautiful passing on of the work and the mission and the will of God. And then he goes on. Verse 16, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So we've talked about the baptism and the why, but now let's look at the actual event itself. Because for Matthew, it's not just about the baptism. That's not the important thing. What's really important is what happens here with the voice and what happens with the Spirit. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him. And the Spirit of God descending like a dove came to rest on him. Now, guys, what's interesting about this is these are allusions to Old Testament events. So in a way, Stephen, back to what you were saying, there is prophecy because... Because some of the Old Testament that it alludes to is from Isaiah and from Ezekiel, two prophets. Let's think about that for a second. The story of Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a prophet while the people of Israel had been taken away from their homeland and placed in Babylon. We talked about this three weeks ago, I think, about how there was a second Exodus. The second exodus was when the people left Babylon and moved back to Israel. So Ezekiel was a prophet while they were in Babylon, and one thing that Ezekiel prophesied is that there would be destruction of the temple. So what does that have to do with this? We will see later in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus also prophesies the destruction of the temple. But he goes a step further. He will be destroyed, but there is a new way to experience faith, that you are now the temple, that God doesn't reside in some building, that he's come to reside with you, that you're the temple of God now. And so by using this allusion back to Ezekiel, he's in essence saying that Jesus has come to create a new temple, and it's not a building There is no building that can hold God, that God shows up. He shows up at the Jordan River. He shows up in the desert that we're going to see when Jesus is tempted, right? God shows up in the the places that no one else wants to show up in. That's where God shows up. 
The other one is Isaiah, and particularly it's Isaiah prophecy about the suffering servant. And in that prophecy, he talks about how the Spirit of God is going to reside on this suffering servant. And this suffering servant is going to suffer and serve for the people of Israel. So when you put those two things together in these allusions that go back to the Old Testament, what we learn is that Jesus has come to undo the work of the temple and to create a new way of experiencing God. Because the temple was the only place you could be in God's presence. Jesus has come to release that presence everywhere. We become the temples. God resides with us and in us. And he's also saying that in order for that to happen, I've come to suffer for you. I'm going to be dead and brought back to life. I'm going to bear your sin and give you new life. All that is wrapped up into the symbolism here and into this story. And then the voice comes and alludes to another Old Testament story. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now, it actually alludes to prophecy in Isaiah, but there's also another story, a story of a man who loved his son very much and was told by God, take your son up to this mountain and I want you to build an altar and build a fire around said altar and then place your son on the altar and kill him and sacrifice him. That son was a beloved son with whom the father, and who was his father? Very good. Father, sorry. <laughs> the old VBS coming out in me. Yeah. And he was well pleased with this son he had, this son that he longed for and waited for and prayed for and God had promised and the son shows up but because he loved the, the God of the universe more than he loved his son, he was willing to sacrifice his son. And so this phrase then alludes back to that story. And in essence, he's saying, I am going to sacrifice my son whom I love for you. Jesus' baptism wasn't a simple baptism. He was yelling through his actions everything God was about to do. He's saying this God who created all of this loves you so desperately that he's willing to sacrifice his own son. That that son is going to come with power, but power's going to look different because it's going to be power through service and power through love. And power through sacrifice. And that son is going to be dead and brought back to life so that you might die to your old ways and be brought to new life. Because this new life includes the Holy Spirit coming to you, not sitting somewhere in a building far, far away. The Spirit and the presence of God, His power is available to you. Guys, that's a powerful message wrapped up in this scene. 
And I want to jump back to one more illusion before we conclude. Nowhere else in all of Scripture and nowhere else in any Jewish literature is the Holy Spirit related to the dove. So spirit and dove only happens here in this scene. Which then begs the question, so what are we supposed to understand from this? Well, there, as you can imagine, are arguments over what that might mean, but there is one place in Scripture where a dove is famous. Does anybody know where that place is? Noah's Ark. Noah sends out the dove after all the destruction, and the whole surface of the earth was covered in water. And God was creating a new earth out of it. Do you see the theme where it's going? And the dove flew over the water and found no resting place and came back. It hovered over the chaos and saw that there was no place to land, so it came back. And if you take that, and then you look at the other place in Scripture where the form of something hovering over water occurs is in Genesis, where the Spirit which is coming down to Jesus, hovers like a bird over the chaos at the beginning of creation. So taking those two themes and then adding it already to this rich pile of, of illusions and, and symbols, we see that, that in this story, God is screaming, I am creating new. I am hitting reset. I am starting over and you can be a part of this new reset. You can be a part of this new life. You can be a part of this new temple. You can be a part of this new thing I am doing. And as we talked about last week, John made it clear that he came to start a new kingdom. It's an invitation through all these beautiful pictures to let God do something new. And it's a reminder that in the middle of our destruction and chaos, in the middle of the worst situations in life, there is a God who shows up. And with the baptism, Jesus says, here I am. I'm showing up. But too many of us are walking around with all the right equipment, but we can't carry the load ourselves. We're trying. We've done all the right things according to human will and effort, all the right things according to what our culture tells us, but we're really more like that toddler. We can't make it up the hill ourselves. We can't ascend the 3,000-foot mountain. We can't get there on our own. And what this reminds us is that our God 
has a toddler pack. And we're a lot more like toddlers than we think we are. He wants to pick us up. I don't even know how you do that. (laughs) Put us on his back and take us to new places. We hope you found this week's message meaningful and impactful. And as always, don't just hear it, but put it into practice. Until next time, have a good one.